1 Corinthians 15. We're still there. Verses 29 through 34. And we're really dealing with a, a subject that would be easy to skip over. In, re, in reality, I even kind of wanted to skip over this paragraph. That's the problem with being verse by verse, line on line, chapter by chapter, methodical in your preaching, in your teaching. That's the problem with it. It's the drawback. You get to verses like verse 29 and you're forced to deal with them or everybody in the congregation says, well, there must be a problem there. Preacher won't touch it. You know. So I'm thankful that somebody grabbed me up as a young man and said, it's not popular. You're not gonna, you're not gonna, you know, wow people with your abilities probably. People are gonna think you're foolish in a lot of ways. You're gonna make a lot of mistakes from the pulpit. You're going to have to go back and correct yourself regularly as you keep teaching through it, but stay in it. And it'll change you. And it'll, it'll, God will use the Word to change the people. And He even intends to change us through paragraphs like we're dealing with today. He has purpose for them. And they're equally inspired. And they're beautiful. And so, we're going to do that. But before we get there, I, I do want to, um, clear up a, a couple of details that were, I think, misleading. And, uh, and at least confusing in the sermon two weeks ago. You know, in an attempt to hurry through several passages dealing with, uh, the, the resurrection of the dead, which was our, uh, particular topic in the paragraph that precedes this one, in verses 23 and 25, particularly of 1 Corinthians 15, I referenced John 5, I referenced 1 Thessalonians 4, Revelation 20, and I tied all those things together in a very quick fashion, in summary form. And so um, in doing that, first I want to say that I I did not intend to provoke or antagonize. I I realized that dealing with those passages is a hot topic. And probably looking back on it now, everybody can Monday morning quarterback about preaching. I probably wouldn't do it, okay? Um, but I did. And so if I provoked you or if I seemed antagonistic for that, I am sorry. That, was, that wasn't what I thought was in my heart at least, as best I know it, before the Lord. Second, in explaining the text in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, specifically 16 and 17, I use the term rapture. It's a Latin term, not a Greek term. And is it is used to catch up the doctrines that surround the snatching away of God's saints. And it's the, it's the term you're probably used to hearing and using. Um, and the, the passage reads, if you weren't here, you're thinking, gosh, I, didn't, I wish I'd have been here. Sorry I missed that. Uh, sounds like it was controversy. It really wasn't all controversy, but this point I think was, for, for the Lord, it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17, for the Lord... Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And the the word rapture is used most often to refer to caught up in the air to meet the Lord. That whole idea is really caught and captured in the term rapture. It's used as shorthand. So that you don't, it's like Trinity. So you don't have to always run to different places and make reference to this thing. And so, in doing that, it was confusing. I, I did not use the Greek term 
that's in the text in First Thessalonians, um, and I, um, I, I should have. Harpazo is there, and it is used 12 times in the, in the New Testament. None, none of the texts as I see them refer directly to his second coming, as we should expect, because the term means to be snatched, to caught up, pulled away immediately, even by force. And we see it in places where Jesus says he took himself away from a place because he knew they would snatch him or make him, pull him, force him to be king, to go to his throne. And and texts like that is where the term's most often in use. Where it's how it's not used is in combination with this idea of meeting the Lord. Other places it's not used in this way, and I think Paul's using it very technically, and that's what I was really explaining. Very confusingly, and it still may be confusing to you. I think Paul's using very specific language to talk about being snatched up to meet the Lord. That word for meet in the Greek is used two other places in the New Testament. Matthew 25, 6, when the virgins are uh, being talked about, ten, the ten virgins, five ready, five not. And it says they, those who went out to meet the Lord, or the one who is coming, the, the groom. And then in Acts 28, 15, this word for, being, for meeting is used for Paul when he goes uh, into a place and is met by believers there who are excited about his arrival. And they go out to meet him and usher him into the city. And you remember my point. I believe the rapture is just that. God snatches us to him and we welcome him into the city. And so I spent a lot of time explaining the meeting. And I think it was confusing in some ways and that wasn't my intention. Um, But I do think that this, uh, this idea uh, is technical, and I do think it's supportable, and I do think it not only comes from the Bible, but from the Greek, secular Greek around the time to talk about leaders, kings particularly, being ushered into a city as victorious, as ruling. And that's how I see it. And you remember I said, I believe that is the true triumphal entry of the king. The, the bringing him in to rule and reign over us. And so this is the most basic text here in First Thessalonians 4 for understanding that doctrine, though it is not the only text used in the Bible by those who would teach a different doctrine on the rapture. There are other texts. And uh, all of them are built on this text. I, I do believe that. If... We remove 1 Thessalonians 4 as a secret or a catching away of the church out of the world for the purpose of God then pouring His wrath out through the Antichrist on the unbelievers. If we take 1 Thessalonians 4 out of the arsenal, the other texts struggle to make the point of a rapture prior to the tribulation. And so I said it was the only text. It's not the only text, but it is the most foundational as far as I know and the arguments I've read from the commentators. And so, I want to clear those things up. Not because I want to reiterate my point, but rather just to be clear, because I do think words have meaning. I do think they belong in a context. I think we need to stress the context and try our best to stay within those confines. And uh, I might not have done the best job of that, and so for that I'm sorry, truly sorry. And so, um, this is what I, I want to say in regard to 
our position on the doctrine of last things, my position in particular. You and I can come to different understandings of this. It's, I know it's strange in our day where churches divide over this doctrine. To me, it's silly. I encourage you, uh, if you're struggling at this time to uh, understand this teaching, I encourage you to study the Word of God. If, if you have no position on this doctrine, then I encourage you to study the Word of God because I do think it is important, very important, to how you live every day, how I live every day. If you have a position and you're not struggling with this doctrine, then I would encourage you to pray to God for humility and then study the Word of God. Because if you're not still struggling in some way with these things, then you're probably pretty prideful and, 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 uh, and need some humbling. And so, uh, again, that's not in any way attacking you. I've been in those shoes where I thought I had it all figured out and then God humbled me. And it can be public or private or in so many different ways. And so, uh, you know, we, we do not believe any doctrine simply because I teach it or some other man teaches it. What I want you to do is go to God's Word and wrestle with it yourself. Use other people to help you and guide you, but don't depend on them because all of us are unsure at some points. And if you're still in regard... You know, unclear in the matter on First Thessalonians 4. I'll be glad to talk with you more about it. I, I though, want to get back to our text and about our business. And uh, so that that's where I'm at. And I do uh, thank you for the opportunity to, in a lot of ways, mess up and have to come back and apologize uh, and make things as clear as I can. So hopefully that clears it up. Now, let me go to the text for today. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 through 34. Let's read it together. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame, Corinth. We might read, or my children. I think that's a good ending to it. This is, again, a very difficult text to interpret and especially to apply to our lives. It deals with, right off the bat, a doctrine which is very strange to us, the baptism of the dead. And so let's jump right in with both feet. I've got three points, and hopefully when I leave, you'll have applied, and I will have applied this to our lives. First of all, from this text, I think we see the bad doctrine always leads to evil living, without any exception. And a matter of fact, I take it that Paul is really dealing with that here as he deals with this doctrine of baptism for the dead. In verse 29, Paul discusses a practice that is otherwise unknown to us. Nobody that we can read was practicing baptism for the dead in the church. Nobody. There's no historical record of it. There's no 
uh, teaching in the first century about this. There's no other mention of it in the scriptures. It's very mysterious, very strange. It is apparently being practiced in Corinth, and it seems that it is being carried out by those who teach that there is no resurrection from the dead, which is strange, isn't it? And that's what Paul points out. Otherwise, why are you why are they baptized for the dead if they be not raised? He's asking the question of his opponents. This is a very difficult verse because, again, we're not sure what Paul's referring to in the first place. Second, if he's referring to actual baptism for the dead, why does he not condemn the practice outright? Why doesn't he just say, don't do it? That's a problem. And then finally, it's difficult to understand because why would those who do not believe in a resurrection even teach a doctrine like being baptized for the dead? It, it just in every way, it seems strange and odd. But as great as all these questions are, we have to struggle for an answer. So first to the first question, I'm not sure what Paul's talking about in this verse. I've studied it. I've looked at it. I've Struggled with it. I've read great men about it. And I don't know. Does that make you uncomfortable? I, I don't know. I, I think there's multiple ways we can see it. And I'm not going to stand up here and pretend to have answers that I don't have. I think, in my opinion, can I say that clearly? In my opinion, he is talking about being baptized for actual dead people. I know that you say, well, that's what it says. But there's a lot of commentary that says otherwise. And these are brilliant men, much more brilliant than myself. So I say that as it's my opinion that it is referring to a practice that a group within the Corinthian church in a very localized way was carrying out for dead people. Not church-wide. Not even church-wide in Corinth. I think it was a very small sect inside the church. One of their practices uh, of the false teachers seems to be this practice of baptizing for the dead. Notice in the text that Paul uses the third person when discussing this. Otherwise, what do people in the ESV? I think in the King James, it's tough, I always struggle reading the King James, but I think it says they. I'm pretty sure. I think the American Standard Version uses the word they. You NASB guys. It says they. Other, those. Why are those? Say, say third person. It's, in other words, I see him distancing himself from it. He doesn't say it's absolute sin. Don't do it. Because baptism for the dead is not what he's talking about. Particularly, he's using the false teaching of the false teachers that leads to false doctrine and practice to refute their own teaching. If these jokers, we might say in our day, in the Fred Sanford way, if these people don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, why are they having you be baptized for the dead? What purpose does it serve? He's using their logic against them to try to win their converts, their followers. He's making an argument here. Paul's good at arguments. Very, very good. He's not... He himself is not practicing baptism for the dead. Neither are any of the apostles that we know of or have any record of. Neither is the church at that time practicing it in any full-blown manner. So this is not a text dealing with this particularly 
And I have no reason to think we should be practicing it. In this way, I see Paul as indirectly separating himself from the practice. And by separating himself, he's condemning it. Why are those people baptizing people for the dead? Because look what he does in the next phrase. He switches. Why, if the dead are not raised, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? You notice he went from third to first. I'm not baptizing anybody for the dead. I'm not teaching baptism for the dead. That's what they're teaching. We are in danger every hour. I personally am being put in danger at Ephesus for the sake of the gospel. You see the separation. So I see himself separating himself from this teaching and using their false teaching against them to dispute them. The second issue I brought up in regard to the first verse is why he does not directly condemn the practice. Paul's not writing about the issue of baptism. He's arguing for the resurrection. If he launches out in a full explanation about why you shouldn't be baptized for the dead, the audience gets distracted. His readers go on a tangent. He's not there to get them back in, so he doesn't even go down the road. He, he, you might say, why does he even bring it up? Because this outlandish doctrine that the resurrection isn't going to happen is leading to evil practice, and he's using the evil practice to undo their, their teaching. But he doesn't want to deal, I don't think, directly with this practice because it's not his point. His point is resurrection. And so again, I think this, I believe this is what we're seeing here. It's a risk that he avoids in his writing. After all, I believe he did condemn the practice by discussing it in the way he does, first of all. And second, he does this with other issues. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 10, which we won't do for time's sake, he does the exact same thing with the eating of meat at the table of idols. He does not directly condemn it. Yet later, and in other writings, he does condemn eating at the table of idols. But he doesn't do it in 1 Corinthians 10 because, again, that's not... His point in 1 Corinthians 10, he's using that as a picture, as something to discuss, to bring them to right teaching. And so it's pretty common for Paul, or it's, it's done in other places by Paul, let's put it that way. He's saying, just so we're clear, if you're being baptized for dead people, and the same people who are baptizing you are saying resurrection won't occur, it's unreasonable. Why would you do it? Finally, why would those teaching against the resurrection of the dead also teach baptism for the dead? I can't, if I can't tell you why Paul does this, I can't tell you why they were actually teaching it. But let me simply say, it seems to me to be a superstitious practice carried out in the church at Corinth and in the church of Corinth only. It also appears to have died out pretty quickly, probably because Paul stopped it and he sent others to stop it. It's interesting to me that this practice was picked, picked up on by two groups, both heretical groups in the second century. The Marcionites, those who denied the Old Testament and followed only the teachings of Christ and Paul, pick up baptism for the dead. It's also interesting to me that in our day, the cult of Mormonism has picked up this same practice. The fruit of the tree tells us what the tree is. If the fruit is evil, the tree is evil. 
And the fruit of this tree of false doctrine about the resurrection is baptism of the dead. And that fruit is evil. And it's picked up by men and people who are deceitful and false teachers and continued in practice by them and by them alone. Of all the disputes about baptism, mode, who should or shouldn't be baptized, whether it's sprinkle, babies, immerse, adults, all the questions surrounding baptism, the church has never wrestled with this question that we know of, ever. And so I say that to say the fruit is evil, the practice is evil, because the teaching itself is evil. I, I would say this superstitious combination with cultic and, and false teachers leads me that quite possibly these false teachers are gaining numbers by the practice. They're preying on the weakness and the superstition of the people. Oh, you're worried about those who've already died, are you? And they didn't hear about Jesus. You're worried about them? That your, your, your grandma died without Jesus? Oh, well, come to our meeting and we'll baptize you and your grandma will be all right. And if you show up at our meeting, you give us power and influence. And we gain wealth and prestige, possibly. I don't really know their motives. But I think they at least are raising the question. You know, you can go to Paul's meetings and you can go to that church over there where Paul planted and started this work about Jesus. Or you can come with us. He's not going to help you with your dead grandma. We will. Yeah. What if they are wrong, Paul? What if he's wrong about the resurrection? You'd be better off to go with us so we can have some confidence instilled for your loved ones that are dead and passed away so they can be at peace in the afterlife or the anathema or whatever it is they went into because they don't believe in a resurrection of the body. Maybe this is how the practice was used by the apostate teachers at Corinth. I don't really know. But it's, it's enough to say that Paul is using their teaching against them. And I think that's his purpose in writing in verse 29. If the dead are not raised, as these false teachers are teaching, why are they baptizing you for the dead? What good does it do if the dead are never going to live again? This is foolish talk. The dead are raised. That's going to be his conclusion. The dead are raised. Now... What does this verse have to do with me? What does it have to do with you? What does it have to do with your family? See why you struggle because we, this is so mysterious and yet I need to apply it. You need to apply it into our lives. Here's my shot at it. Everything, it means everything to us. Because wrong doctrine always, without exception, leads to evil living. Look what Paul says in verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Paul, probably quoting from Menander's comedy, Thice, says that if you live around, make a habit of spending time around false teachers, your life will end bad. Their evil will become your evil. And I think that's how it always ends. I've heard it all in my time. I've used it all in my time. Well, you know, I'm going to that church over there. I know they teach wrong doctrine. But what's doctrine matter anyway? I just love the people. Be careful. The teaching you associate with will become your belief system very quickly 
and will lead to evil living. And Paul's telling these people, don't spend your time with these people. Don't waste your time with these people. Don't connect your train to their engine or you'll pay their price. They're false teachers and they will ruin your life. They're leading you into ungodly living, which will always lead to destruction in the end. Those who teach an ungodly lifestyle always corrupt the lives of their followers. That's always, not sometimes. Always. The same is true today. False teaching is destroying thousands and thousands of lives. In an age where we downplay the importance of doctrine and downplay teaching and preaching and say, oh, there's so many other things we could be doing with our time that's so much more productive. I say, and I think the Bible says, and verses like this show us that Paul would say, Doctrine is crucial. Teaching is the thing you should be doing and emphasizing in your gatherings. If not, your church and other churches will be led astray and fall into false doctrine which will corrupt their life and lead to destruction. So, it's my job to give you a couple of examples of this that's going on in our churches in this church, possibly, and I think it probably is, unfortunately, and especially in our culture of church. I use that term purpose. We live in a culture of church. We do not live in a Christian culture. We have never lived in a Christian culture. We have always lived in a church culture. And there was a time when the church culture was good, and now I'm afraid it's become increasingly wicked. So that you don't get off on the rabbit trail, we'll stay on the point. Relativism or the teaching and the belief that all truth is subjective is one of these teachings that is false and it is infiltrating our churches. Relativism. It it goes something like this. I think it wreaks havoc on our church. We hear the impact in statements like this from people. Well, that may work for your life, but I simply cannot accept that understanding of God. I don't, my God, my God doesn't do those things. Well, that's good for you, but not for me. Relativism. It comes out in our life. Christianity is displayed as narrow. I believe, statements like this, I believe God is love. And He's going to accept me as I am. That's what we're facing in our day. Because we've bought this, I'm afraid. The I'm the captain of my own ship mentality. No one tells me what I have to believe, who I have to submit to. I'm my own man, my own woman, my own teenager. I'll do as I please, where I please, how I please, with who I please. This heresy of relativism is destroying lives. And I want to tell you, Jesus does not run from it. He does not hide from it. He's very clear. Listen to the words about true Christianity. From Jesus in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. If you're struggling with relativism, listen to Jesus. Enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. We got more people than that group over there. We must be right. Sounds good, doesn't it? Be careful. Big isn't always bad. 
It also doesn't confirm that it's good. The argument's not right because more people are saying it. The argument is right objectively because God's Word says it's right or it's wrong because God's Word says it's wrong. That's how we make our decisions. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus on true Christianity. And again, he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus says in these two statements, putting them together, the gate is narrow. It is as narrow as me. And you can't enter eternal life except through me. So when relativists accuse Christianity of being narrow, our answer should not be, well, look at it this other way. Our answer should be, yes, we're narrow. That's so arrogant. No, it's arrogant to contradict the living God and to mock Him by standing in a pulpit and preaching to people that they are their own gods. Manifest destiny of the soul in a sense. That's arrogant. Not believing what Jesus Himself said. Yes, the way is narrow. It's hard. It goes through Christ. It leads to death. And then to life. That's the teaching of the Gospel. That's the teaching that our world and our churches are slowly rejecting. We're making side doors. We're climbing over the doors. We're not going through the door of the sheepfold. We're climbing over the walls as hirelings and thieves and robbers. And we're, we're making it a blur so everybody fits in and feels comfortable. No. Lost people should be welcome in our churches and they should fill our churches. And when they get here, they should be absolutely uncomfortable. And Christians who choose to live like the world ought to leave here feeling awful unless they have submitted to the King and repented of their sin. That's the truth of the Bible. That's what Jesus Himself said. On this rock, on myself, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let's, as a church, stop trying to recreate the wheel and invent a gospel that everybody likes so that we have a big crowd. More people, more worldly success, more money. I, I can't help but feel a little bit like the false teachers in Corinth were a lot like the false teachers of our day. They liked the money, the prestige, the name, the, the fame of this world, the praise of men. And Paul's saying, they're false. Here's why they're false. It's not even reasonable what they're asking you to do. Don't fool yourself. Bad life in the teacher leads to bad life in the students. Every time. A second one. American dream theology. That's what I've dubbed it, okay? I, I could just call it your best life now. I could also call it a Ponzi scheme for preachers who have a desire to get rich off the people of God. It's pretty harsh. I think it's merited because 
of the wake of destruction that this false teaching is leaving behind. Whole lives and families are being destroyed because churches which taught them if you just have enough faith are now telling them they're lost sinners because they lost their job yesterday. And because they don't drive a nice car, live in a big house, wear the right kinds of clothes, send their last dollar into the temple so God might bless their faithfulness. These so-called Christian teachers fill our churches today. And I think they are the outworking of a very secular idea which came about in the United States in the 1930s. In 1931, to be exact, James Trussell Adams defined the American dream when he wrote his book, The Epic of America. Listen to what he said. Listen to what he said. And what, what he said is at the same time, it's, it's acceptable and it's, it excites my nationalistic pride. And yet at the same time, I'm hearing the Spirit say, that right there is a load. Don't believe it. Thousands will go to hell because they believe that. This is what he said. The dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement. It is a difficult dream for the European upper classes to interpret adequately and to many of ourselves have grown weary and mistrustful of it. It is not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely, but a dream of social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable in themselves capable of. That's what they're going to be able to achieve in America. And be recognized by others for what they are. Regardless of the fortuitous circumstances of birth or position. And some of you, it's crept in so deep that some of us are sitting and saying, what's wrong with that? It's what God wants for us. I'm not anti the nation. I'm thankful. As I was telling Jason Crow again, and the first time, you know, I've had an opportunity to tell him that he's leaving now to go serve a third term. He's serving in our place. And I was able to tell him how proud I am, how thankful I am for him. And I mean every word of it. Our country is blessed to have men and women serving every day that we might be free. But never, ever, Ever will we find in the Bible a rally around some nationalistic pride about reaching our own goals in our own ability that we might rise to our fullest potentials when grafted over into the church from its social order, it is absolutely destructive. How, you might say? Well, it connects to the continual renewal of the prosperity gospel in the United States. The, pro, the, pro, the proprietors of this so-called gospel would say to us, God wants me to be happy, to reach my fullest potential. He wants to bless me and give me wealth because of our faith, despite where I'm born or what class I'm in. He wants me to be happy, reach my potential, be rich. If I simply believe enough in Him and sow the seeds of ministry into the ministries that I'm involved in, then God will bless 
me. And preachers much worse are teaching their people this. And what I would say is God hates this lie. He absolutely abhors this. Why? Because there is no promise of physical prosperity for those who believe in Jesus in this life. There is no promise of prosperity here. There is the absolute promise, sure and unchanging, that our treasure is in heaven. Guess what? The stock market has no bearing on the one whose treasure is Christ. The death of a loved one has no bearing on the one who has said, I have died to my family and I'm alive to Christ. No bearing on it. It doesn't change it. It allows daddies in the Sudan to stand over their dying children and dead children from starvation, the simplest things of life needed to sustain life, food and water, and they don't have it. And they're able to stand and sing hymns of praise to a great and gracious King who loves them infinitely more than the world can ever hate them. That's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's its impact. And if you hook your train to any teaching that preaches this prosperity, health, wealth, whatever form, American dream, reach your full potential, junk, when your world crumbles, and it will, you won't have anything to stand on. You will go like the shifting sand out to sea. The rock, the rock is safe. Oh, he's not tame. He is a lion, but He's safe. He's the only safe place in all the world. And so when we hook our train to false teaching, don't be surprised when the house crumbles, when this world caves in on us. We need to hear not that we can have our best life now. What we need to hear is Matthew 16, 24 through 26 that says, Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, not reach his full potential, not look to earn the most wealth he can in this life, deny himself and come after me and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and the American dream and loses his soul? What will it profit? Or, what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is saying, when you're laying on your bed and you're ready to draw life's final breath, it will not matter what this world has given to you. It will only matter if you have received Christ. And if you've traded your soul for what this world will offer when you step across the river before God, unclothed from this life and all its trappings of wealth and riches, it will not go well. Be careful that you don't associate yourself with this false doctrine that exalts self-improvement, moralism, self-dependence. I've hammered on riches because we're in an economic downturn, and I, th- I think it's a good time 
to get people to agree with you that riches are here one day and gone the next. But let me also say quickly that there are literally hundreds and thousands of people dying in a Christless hell because they are pupils to a moralism which is infinitely more dangerous than the wealth prosperity gospel. The teaching that you can fulfill your own potential, that you can be a good person outside of Jesus, is sending infinitely more people to hell, I think, than even the gospel about riches and wealth. And let me tell you, it's creeped into your home and my home. We're more interested in raising good kids than we are raising Christ-exalting men and women. We're more interested in whether they're going to go take a drink than we are whether they've drank from the well of life. We're more interested in whether they might become intimate to be nice with children here before marriage than we are concerned about whether they are intimate with the only one in the universe who knows them. That's what we're worried about. Don't smoke. Don't drink. Don't have sex before marriage. And you'll be a good kid. And God will bless your life. No! What you may do is be a good kid Miss all the thrills of sin in this world and go to hell. And miss the blessings of treasure in heaven too. And I'm not trying to encourage loose living. I'm simply saying this. Asceticism, the denial of things which are physical for the sake of being acceptable spiritually, and gluttonous behavior, indulgence, is the same sin. It's a focus on the things rather than the one Creator. So you can go starve yourself and you can go give all yourself stuff to the poor and live like a pauper until the end of your days and die and face hell. This is not a message against wealth. Absolutely not. God, in His great infinite grace, blesses many with wealth. All of us, by the way, by the world's standards, are wealthy. He has blessed all of us. And it is not sinful. It is not sinful. The sin is in when you think God has blessed me as an end in itself. He's blessed me because I'm a good person. And I deserve it because I work harder than that bum on the street. No. God would say to you what He said to Abraham. I blessed you so that you might be a blessing to the nations. And so it's my contention. I spent a good part of this week reading about an extremely wealthy family, the Guinness family from Ireland, that took their wealth. God blessed them with unbelievable wealth. They took their wealth and invested it for the sake and the name of Christ and His glory all over Europe. And I say they invested in heaven They could have just been good people, aesthetics, denying this life and gave it all away. And it would have been good for all the people they gave wealth to. And they still would have died without Christ and gone to hell. Giving your stuff away doesn't make you holy. Living with a bunch of stuff doesn't make you holy. What makes you holy is Christ. And so if you have denied yourself and you've taken up the cross and followed Him, then wealth or poverty matters not. And all I would say to you and I is we need to consider how would God use our wealth for the good of all people in all lands, this land included. That's all I would say. The same sin 
is involved in moralism and licentiousness. Same sin. It's focused on the rules. What I can and can't do. The moralist says I can't do. The licentious person says I can do. The moral person says the law will save me. The licentious person says Jesus is love and He will have grace on me. It's the same sin. It's missing the giver because of the things in your life. So please do not leave saying, well, the preacher's against wealth. I guess we're all sinners. No. The preacher, this one at least, is not against wealth. I'm against any teaching that devalues Christ and exalts anything, whether it be poverty or wealth, whether it be moral living or immoral living, whatever it may be. There are literally hundreds of false teachers teaching this thing on both ends of the spectrum. And all I'm saying is, join Paul and say, the gospel of Christ is enough The resurrection will happen. Therefore, I will lay up treasure in heaven, not on this earth. Secondly, right doctrine will lead to godly sacrifice. Paul now turns to his personal sacrifice in this text. He's dealt with their sin, their false teaching. Now he turns to his life. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's his way of intimately saying, you're my children. I planted this church. I labored for your salvation I praise God for you. You're a blessing to me. Why am I facing wild beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Don't be deceived. We need to be out eating, drinking, because tomorrow we're going to die if he doesn't raise us from the dead. And so, is he exaggerating? Is he exaggerating when he says that we're in danger every hour? Is he speaking in hyperbolic fashion when he says that, humanly speaking, I faced animals at Ephesus, wild beasts? No. He's not speaking in any way exaggerating here. He's speaking the truth. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty one through 33 says, But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all the churches who is weak. And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast the, the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eretus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket, though through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. That is the account of Paul, a thumbnail sketch of what he went through every day of his life. So when he says, why are we under distress every hour? He's not speaking in exaggeration. 
He's telling the absolute truth. The gospel will bring the sword because it is the fragrance of death to those who do not believe. The world persecuted Christ, so Paul expects, and we should expect, persecution at the hands of the world. And we suffer this persecution with joy, knowing, knowing that everyone who enters the kingdom of God will face persecution. Everyone who enters the kingdom of God will suffer. We have great joy as we think of our experience in suffering because we have been counted worthy to suffer for His name. We count it all joy when men say all manner of evil against us for the sake of Christ because our reward is in heaven. I want you to know today that it's my prayer that God would prepare us for the trials and suffering that we will endure in His name in the coming months and years. We will endure them by His grace. I pray that some of you suffer for His name in other nations that are yet to know the true gospel. I think about the persecutions that Elizabeth faces now in Honduras, separated from her family. I mean, she's already suffered. She's going to Guatemala to serve the Lord. A volcano erupts. I don't know how often that happens in Guatemala, but I'm not thinking every day. And then a tropical storm hits on its heels. And then she gets all her plans changed, and she's wondering, what's God up to? And this is... I'm missing out on the thing I've been so excited about. What's God doing with me? And I just encourage you to read her blog. It's amazing what God does through suffering, what He does through trials. She's now in the place where she was supposed to be last year when she couldn't go because of what happened in Caitlin's case. So the suffering of one sister. A man breaks in in the night to harm girls who are there to share the gospel. And a parent, separated by hundreds of miles, says, why is this happening to my child? And a Christian, a devout, beautiful Christian young lady faces danger for sharing the gospel. And says, what is God up to? A lot. He's making us into His image. And we will face these trials and persecutions. And those are just a couple of small ones in comparison to what we will face in the future and what others are facing even today. And we should expect it. And joy is the result for the Christian. Joy is the result. How? Because these momentary and light afflictions, as Paul said, the ones I just read to you, They aren't even worthy to be counted alongside the glory that is now laid up in heaven for me on account of these trials and sufferings. So we get so focused on our suffering that we lose sight of Christ is what I'm saying. And what Paul would have us say is, in your suffering, when you're in danger every hour, and when you're facing wild beasts, which I believe is a way of talking about those who opposed him at Ephesus, not actual beasts, though it could have been beasts, but probably wasn't because he lived through the experience. The last time they tried to feed me to the lions, I didn't live from it. Okay, but regardless of that, he's facing danger every day. And what was he just walking around with a smile on his face like, easy come, easy go? No. But the deep joy which he felt was sustained and it grew on account of the trials. Why? Because his focus was not suffering, but Christ. As Peter says, if we suffer, suffer because of our evil, what good does it do us? But if we suffer for him... That's where the joy comes from. 
We're suffering for Him and with Him. And it is almost as if we wear it as a badge to honor Christ, to say, our, our master suffered and I'm an unworthy servant. Why should I not suffer? Our world has trained us to be adverse to suffering. And all I'm saying is, some of you need it now. And I'm on the edge of saying, pray for it. But I'm not there quite yet. But I'm on the toe line of it. You say, that's foolish. Why are you going to pray for it? Because I think for some of you, it's the only way you will ever know Christ. Because you're so tied to the false teachings and the false pretend gospels that go out every day over the radio and the TV and in pulpits, that the only way you will ever get cut from that is to suffer. And what you need to say is, God, do to me whatever it takes that I might know your son Jesus. I'm telling you to do what Jesus said do in Matthew 13. Find the treasure, buy the field. Sell all you've got, buy the field. I'm telling you what he told the merchant who found the pearl of great price. He sold his business to have the pearl. People thought he was crazy. But he had the pearl. That's all I'm saying to you. Don't focus on the suffering. The momentary suffering. Focus on eternity. And eternity is in Christ. That's all I'm saying. I think that's what Paul is saying. Are we suffering at no account? No, because the resurrection is true. Jesus is going to raise us from the dead, and I do have a treasure waiting in heaven. And his treasure was a man, a physical God-man, Jesus Christ. Finally, we see that right doctrine will lead to godly sacrifice because it will prepare us These light afflictions and momentary afflictions today will prepare us for bigger suffering in the future. I'm saying that for others, I can't tell you what your suffering is. I can't tell you how it comes. For some of you, it's a sacrifice of your possessions. For others, you need to die to your desire to be loved and approved by other men. For some, still others, it's the love of family so that they can truly love Jesus Christ. Some of you love your children so much. That you can't love Jesus. Because in your heart you would say today, if he takes that, I can't serve him. I don't know if I can serve him. And I would say, then you have an idol and it lives in your home. You best die to it. Eternity hangs in the balance. I'm saying the same thing that I think the Bible teaches us over and over is that to be his disciple in word and deed, we must suffer. We must grab hold of Christ in the suffering that his glory might be revealed. And finally, in this text, we see that we hold the truths of God so that those outside will have a knowledge of God and be confronted with Christ. We see it in verse 34. Verse 34 is very plain to me of all the struggles that may exist in the text. This one's not. Wake up, you bunch of drunkards. As, it is, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Why should I live in right doctrine, a godly life of sacrifice? Why? Because others are watching. Others are watching. Primarily to God, but secondarily because others are watching. And they can't see Christ for all the glitter of this world that's on you as you name His name. 
They can't see Christ because you're more interested in the things of today than you are about eternity. They can't even see Him. They hear you talking. They see your mouth moving. They hear you talking about Jesus. And they say, that dude serves Jesus because he's got a great wife, a good family. He's got possessions. He's popular. He's moved up the corporate ladder. He's reached success in every measure. They can't even see Jesus. They don't see a group of people, I don't think, at Grace Fellowship, maybe, who say, I lift up my eyes to the hills because from there my help comes. My help is the maker of heaven and earth. I think sometimes what they see and hear from Grace Fellowship is Jesus is great to add on to the fact that my help comes from my wife, it comes from my job, it comes from my family, it comes from my success, it comes from my riches. And so they don't even see Jesus. They hear about Him, but they don't see Him. And so Paul is telling them in verse 34 that there are false teachers living among you and they have not even heard of the gospel. And that's to your shame, Corinthians. I'm not there. If I was there, I would tell them the gospel. But you're not telling them the gospel. And that's to your shame. And so what's our response? I've said this, I think, over and over again. Our response to the world and to false doctrine and to anyone who would have some better way my response would be, there is no better way. The resurrection is real. As we've said in previous messages, it is real because Christ Himself was resurrected from the dead. If He was not resurrected from the dead, then we are all in our sins. But He has been resurrected from the dead, therefore do not go on sinning. But tell others, show others, live in such a way that they cannot deny that they have heard and seen the gospel among them. I think that's as close as I can get to what Paul said when he said, I am now filling up the sufferings of Christ. I don't think he was adding to the work of Jesus. I think he was living, breathing example of the suffering of Jesus. The fact is there are people in our day who have not seen Christ suffer. None of us have seen Christ suffer With our eyes. So how will they know this true gospel that calls us to die and live to Christ? Carry our cross and follow Him. They will know if we hold the right doctrine in one hand, Christ, and we live to the world looking like Him. We will be filling up the sufferings of Christ for Cairn County. May it never be said that within the reach of this place, in our neighborhoods, at our workplaces. May it never be said before the throne of God on the day of judgment. I lived 60 years in that place, and right next to that guy, to that girl, I never heard the gospel. Because that's to our shame. We've been given Christ. May we live that others might see Him. Let's pray. Father, Is your word, is your truth, help us now to live, to breathe.